You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington. My research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. In the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Martin Arjovsky, who is a postdoctoral researcher at INRIA, the French Institute for Research in Computer Science and Automation. His research focuses on generative modeling, out-of-distribution generalization, and exploration in reinforcement learning. Martin's PhD thesis is titled Out-of-Distribution Generalization in Machine Learning, which he completed in 2019 at New York University. We start with Martin's interest in mathematics and how it influenced his research in machine learning, then discuss the backstory of his work early on in the PhD on the Wasserstein GAN, an influential variant of the generative adversarial networks method. We then move to his PhD work on out-of-distribution generalization, which centers around the idea of causal invariance and the invariant risk minimization method that he developed. We discuss whether this out-of-distribution setting relates to challenges encountered when learning algorithms from data, differences between theory and practice, and a whole lot more. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesis review, or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash thesis review. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Martin Arjovsky with Out of Distribution Generalization in Machine Learning on the Thesis Review. So in your thesis and in your work overall, there's always an element of rigor, of mathematical rigor. Hmm. So what do you view as kind of the role of this mathematical rigor in deep learning research or in machine learning research more broadly? Hmm. I think it's a bit different for everyone. Um, To be honest, the way I use rigor is more just... um, as a tool uh, when writing papers and for myself as well to just uh, validate uh, what I'm saying, you know? A lot of times uh, we make these arguments based on intuition and things like this. Um, and uh, yeah, I find that it's important to, to especially to, con- to convince the reader that what you're saying is not crap, you know? Um, either you can do this by empirical evidence or you can with solid experiments, which are lacking nowadays in a lot of ways, um, and uh, um, or with rigor, like uh, with little theorems and proofs and things like this. In my papers, I never proved anything that is mind blowing. You know, ideally, the the paper should be sufficiently clear so that the theorem kind of is obvious in a way, um, and it's mm-hmm. just more of a way to like 
be, do like a little pause and say, okay, what the little dialogue that the, the reader and the author has been having up till now is kind of solidified and set in stone, and then uh, you can proceed. Um, mm -hmm. so, so that's one thing, one element uh, that has to do with kind of the scientific process, I guess. Um, and uh, another one that is kind of more personal uh, in, in the sense of uh, like uh, like the yeah the exploration, the conception of ideas itself, and all of this stuff. Um, for me, I, I think I'll, like eighty percent of my my work day more, my working days are in pen and paper, and just like trying to come up with little examples and things like this, or think uh, more broadly about uh, the assumptions that I want to make on my data and my models and these kind of things and see what is true. So it's uh, for, for me, it's just a way of coming up with ideas uh, and, uh, re uh, and convincing myself that what I'm saying is true. Kind of in the same way that I, that I convince the reader, I, it's important for me to convince myself. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a bit of of both, kind of just to convince the author that what I'm saying is true and to come up with ideas myself, I guess. Right. Yeah. Do you find that when you're working on a new problem or in a new area, part of the difficulty is actually just figuring out how to say things in a precise way? And that's kind of one role for having some rigor, like coming up with a precise language for talking about things. Or is that part? Does that part usually just come easily? No, 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 not at all. This is. Uh, <laughs> it's funny because what you say is very important, and like just in general, like writing down the theorem, you know, something that you know is true in your head, but actually writing down a theorem and like, uh, as you say, kind of defining all the objects in play and kind of making sure that everything is uh, well defined and everything. This takes so much time and effort and. I think this also helps when writing a paper and to set things clearly, you know. I, I think Leon, uh, my, my advisor, used to say that uh, coming up with names and definition is a big part of your contribution. Um, mm -hmm. Just uh, kind of saying, okay, this is one object that we're going to study now, or this is one object that uh, the paper is going to care about. Um, but yeah, this is super hard. A lot of time, and this comes to me and surprises me every time, you know, that uh, I start writing a paper, I write a little theorem, and then I'm like, wait, how do I actually like define this thing that I have in my head and like, or, or make sure it's true and come up with like the corner cases and stuff. And you learn a lot in the process by writing theorems that in the end <laughs> end up being false and then like uh, kind of fine tuning until you actually have the right theorem uh, for the paper. Yeah, yeah, you learn a lot in this process. Yeah, but no, this is really hard, and it takes a lot of time, and it surprises me every time. Uh, every time I think I got it, and then I go and write, and yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting to think about how that difficulty, unless you've kind of done it yourself, it's not always visible from reading a paper because you read something and it's like, oh, yeah. this is so clear and so concise, but it it takes a lot yeah. to get to that point. Yeah. Another phrase from my advisor is, uh, you shouldn't tell the, the readers your path, you should tell them the shortest path. Mm, I see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then on the on the topic of the, the theorems, we had uh, both Christian Sagedi on the podcast, as well as Simon Dew. Mm -hmm. And both of them, I think, said something that a lot of the times, by the time you get to stating the theorem, you already know what the proof is going to be. <laughs> 
because you thought about it so much in order to get to the point where you can write it down. Absolutely. Uh, And this is something that happens in all areas of math. And I think uh, Riemann, one of the history's best mathematicians, used to say, give me the theorems and I'll give you the proofs. Uh, That actually, (laughs) like, realizing what is true is the really difficult part. Um, and yeah. something that I think a lot of like more mathematically inclined uh, writers uh, don't do is reach this point in the paper because kind of uh, it's in general good advice to the if you're writing a paper that to the point where uh, the point when a theorem is going to appear that the reader already knows the proof um, in the mm-hmm. sense that it has to be something obvious just uh, by the point that you introduce it yourself. Otherwise, it's, there's going to be a, a bit of a shock moment. And, uh, you know, it has happened to you and me a thousand times that we start papers and then we, we kind of after halfway through them and we leave them in, the, in, the, in a stack in our desks uh, never to <laughs> be picked up again. Um, mm-hmm. And this is very important. Uh, this, uh, this has to be conveyed uh, to the reader, you know? It has to be something obvious by the time you state it, and the theorem should just be about consolidating what is done kind of in stone, you know? Yeah, yeah. Where do you think that this this kind of uh, need or, or want for formalization or just the use of, of mathematics comes from for you? Was it from your background? Like, did you start out in mathematics? Yeah, so I studied in Argentina, um, my like bachelor's plus master's thing, and I studied both computer science and math, but in the end ended up graduating only in math. And I studied pure math, and it was a pretty hardcore program, very in-depth, very theoretical, but it was pretty solid. And um, to be honest, it it just became the way I thought about things and the way I come up with new ideas. I... Yeah, it's just easier for me to think in pen and paper than to run experiments. I'm a very bad coder as well. So uh, the the more I can avoid running sp- experiments, the more the, the better for me. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it was it's also always been important to for me to to have one or both f- uh, feet on earth uh, and kind of not try to come up with theorems that are too abstract or anything and really think of assumptions and. Uh, that are like reasonable in practice uh, and things like this. But uh, yeah, for, for me, it just became uh, the natural way to come up with ideas and to think about things. Uh, just uh, I really also liked like the act of writing in pen and paper, you know, it's something very pleasant. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it just became kind of the way I do things. Did you have a, did you have a favorite area of mathematics back when you were just getting started? Uh, yeah, I, I did. It changed over time as well, quite a lot. Um, I remember back in uh, like uh, in high school, I, I was doing. I, I wasn't very good, but I was uh, doing these math olympiads back in Argentina, and I really liked like number theory and things like this. Uh, and then uh, when I went to college, uh, I got really excited about uh, quantum mechanics. I, I did a course in Coursera of uh, quantum mechanics and quantum computation, and the idea of uh, like wavelengths and, and things like this was really fascinating to me and probability and all of this stuff. And then uh, more and more, I started to be, yeah, just uh, more involved in analysis in general and, and measure theory and probability theory and dynamical systems and things like this, um, rather than, than algebra. 
and this this is to this day in the sense that the, the way I think about things really has to do with like objects that are kind of very soft and like uh, things that can expand or shrink or be controlled uh, and kind of moved around and played with. Uh, and algebra is uh, has a very different flavor. It's very rigid. It's all, it's more about finding the relationship between structures and the transformations that one can apply on structure. Kind of it's a lot more discrete. Um, and there are people that love this and that have very good intuition for this. This has always been super challenging to me. It's always the, the stuff I did the work, like algebraic topology and all of this stuff. Um, I mean, I, I still think it's I, it was good for me to learn about this, but uh, yeah, it's always been very hard and not uh, not the the thing that really inspired me. But anything that is like soft uh, and that has to do with uh, measure theory, probability theory dynamical systems, these kind of things, uh, always been very fun. And throughout my PhD, I, 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 luckily in Quran, there were amazing professors in most areas of math. Uh, I started uh, reading um, and uh, taking a lot of classes in Riemannian geometry, and I got super into it. And up until the point where I was spending too much time on it, and I mean, it was completely useless for machine learning, you know, uh, which is okay, it was because it was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, and then after, after my PhD, I kind of went back to doing machine learning most of the time. I don't know, actually, I, I, read, I, I started doing a, reading a lot of papers on Navier Stokes and PDs and things like this, but yeah, uh, most, mostly machine learning these days again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, are there some connections with things in reinforcement learning or like this information geometry, or was it you were kind of going really outside of machine learning when you're studying this? No, to be honest, uh, I, I very rarely study math because it has an, it, it's going to have an impact on my machine learning abilities. Like, uh, I just think it's fun. It's extremely good training. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, if you can do differential geometry, the math, uh, like Riemannian geometry, I think the math uh, related to the differential geometry in machine learning is going to be very easy. So it's just good training, you know? Like, mm -hmm. uh, to read papers and... Because, it, yeah, kind of if you go deep enough in, in math, uh, then whenever a very mathematical paper comes in machine learning that is you think it's important to, to read, it's gonna be it's not going to be a hard job. It, it's still going to take you time and effort, of course, but uh, it's kind of training in a way. Um, and, uh, no, to be honest, I, I was just taking classes in, in, in NYU because they were fun, and Riemannian geometry was something super interesting to me for whatever reason. Actually, funny enough, I think information geometry is probably one of the least interesting aspects of machine learning these days. <laughs> um, I think it's, and I, I wrote a paper that I never published on, on why this whole thing is, but why the whole thing in many, many problems of interest is just ill-posed and it's not a good formalization. There, there's too many assumptions that play in here that, that break down in practice in very, in important ways. It's not just a technical issue. Uh, and particularly... Yeah, all this information geometry, most of the time, uh, just takes into account uh, these densities between distributions and, and all of this stuff that... Yeah, yeah. Anyhow, <laughs> there's many arguments that one can do in there, but uh, yeah. Uh, no, but uh, at the same time, you know, I was very interested in Wasserstein distances and stuff like that. And, and, and those kind of things uh, have uh, important relationships with differential geometry. Um, but uh, it's not quite why I was doing it. I was just doing it because it was fun and it was good training as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool to hear. So then at, at what point did machine learning come into the picture 
and eventually lead to you, you know, wanting to do a PhD in this area? Yeah, good question. I mean, I was always interested in AI in general. Uh, and uh, in high school, I was super interested in neuroscience, particularly in consciousness and drugs and how like uh, different things could alter like a state of consciousness and a lot of things like this. And uh, I was kind of at the moment I was either, I, I liked math, but I thought pure math was just something very theoretical that was kind of useless. Um, this is in high school. I was very naive. Um, and I sort of went on to study biology and computer science. I ended up dropping out of biology because it was the first class was like 17 hours a week in my university and it was impossible to do both. Um, mm. But it was kind of more from the understanding the brain angle, but also to build something cool. And I was very lucky that in 2012, uh, which was my first year in university, um, uh, a guy that was doing a postdoc in Princeton with uh, Matt Botvinnik. Uh, now has the, the deep mind uh, love in neuroscience. Uh, this guy um, was well, is called uh, Carlos Duke, um, who is also from Argentina. Um, and uh, he was coming back uh, to Argentina for a month, uh, just I think to visit his family and stuff, and decided to do a short course on reinforcement learning. Um, keep in mind, this was 2012, so. DeepMind barely existed, uh, Atari was not a thing, etc, etc, so it was all kind of tabular. Uh, but it was also the time where ImageNet uh, appeared, um, like uh, AlexNet and all this stuff. Um, and uh, that class to me was fascinating. I learned like, so reinforcement, reinforcement learning was actually the first thing I learned uh, in machine learning. Um, and uh, the guy, Carlos Duke, uh, who taught this class was also very cool. He because he, I, I didn't, it was my first year in college. Uh, I didn't have any of the prerequisites or anything like this, but, and he just let me took it anyways. Um, and just chatting with other people in the class and stuff uh, that told me about this deep learning thing. Uh, and I did the uh, Hinton's course, well, they told me about Coursera as well. And I did the Hinton's course on Coursera and Andrew Ng's uh, course on Coursera and these kind of things. And I, I just got more involved in it. I, I thought it was fascinating. I thought, uh, the math was really cool, but also I thought it was a kind of a really good fit for me in the sense that it's the kind of situation in which uh, you think about things on pen and paper and then they're reflected in the when you code them, you know, like uh, not yeah. always, but a lot of times, yes. Uh, like uh, you think of something that's going on, you change things and, and they, yeah, it, it's just very nice to, it's almost like uh, apply the math, but in a very cool way and it uses the kind of math that I like. Like probability mm -hmm. theory, analysis, um, dynamical systems, all of this stuff. So, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then, so, so the title of your thesis has to do with out-of-domain generalization. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm sure as a lot of the listeners might be familiar with, you worked on other things starting out or earlier in your PhD. But let, let's go to the beginning of the PhD. Kind of, can you think back to... So what was in your mind on what you wanted to work on? Or did you just want to explore for a while? What was it like uh, at the beginning of the PhD? Hmm. Good question. Um, so before I, I started my PhD, I did an internship in, in Facebook AI. And uh, it was on a completely different thing. It was on StarCraft and nothing worked. Uh, this was in 2015, uh, early 2015. And... Uh, no, early 2016, sorry. Um, and uh, however, Leon uh, was uh, a meter away from my desk and uh, in meetings and stuff, it became clear that we were both very interested in 
why guns worked and how they worked and kind of trying to explain this mess that was going on. And, and, and there was a lot of interest at the time on this because DC Gun had just came out producing these amazing pictures at the time when everything could, we could do before was feminist, you know? Um, and no one really understood what was going on. Uh, and yeah, it, it, it was just a very interesting problem for both of us, for Leon and I. And uh, Leon agreed to advise me when I came to NYU. Um, it wasn't very clear to me that I really wanted to work on this uh, in the beginning. Uh, I was also thinking of some stuff that had to do with reinforcement learning uh, and other things. Uh, I went on a little trip to Europe when I was kind of like, I learned a bit more about these things and then uh, um, I got uh, a bit more interested in in, in, in guns and I, and I had a few ideas during that trip, which was nice. Uh, and then, yeah, when I came back, uh, I started writing kind of everything that I thought out uh, and uh, it became like a... That, that became a, the iClear paper that, that we published on Towards Principle Methods. Uh, and uh, yeah, at the same time, I was taking a class in, in NYU that uh, uh, was called Entropy and Ergodic Theory that covered, uh, it was very cool. It covered uh, five, it was a class on the five different definitions that different fields gave to entropy and how that related to. The oh, DLDR wow. was that in the end, they're, they're not so very related, funny enough, <laughs> a lot of them. <laughs> um, and uh, one of them had to do with uh, concentration inequalities and telegram inequalities and things like this that uh, dealt a lot with optimal transport and Wasserstein distances. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Leon thought as well that, that the Wasserstein distance would have something at play here. Uh, and uh, yeah, in the end, I, it was more of like, okay, this is a distance that makes more sense that all the nonsense that we're thinking of, like KS, Jensen, Shannon, all of this stuff for, for this problem. Uh, and uh, yeah, talking to a few people in NYU and stuff, uh, we figured out very quickly uh, how to optimize uh, a proxy to it. Um, that was the, the WGAN paper. And uh, then I went to Montreal. Uh, uh, I was going to Montreal often just to see the lab and talk to people and stuff. Uh, and I met Ishan in there, or I guess uh, I met him again. Uh, and he told me that he had this idea for improving W guns and stuff, and I helped them wrap up uh, the paper a little bit. And that was the improved W gun paper. <laughs> That's kind of the whole gist of the story. Um, yeah, that was a heavy year, but uh, it was very cool. Did you, when you were developing the Wasserstein GAN, did you have to make any adjustments to the kind of theoretical side based on intermediate experiments or was it kind of fully derived in in the theory and then the experiments ended up playing out well because it was it was pretty yeah. successful right in practice Yeah no kind of the second one funny enough in in these two papers and I, I don't know for each one but in the in the two papers that I was the first author it was very I I think I I I remember the first time I thought of W1, I finished kind of, I, I was at night in my, in my, in my room, just came out, coming up with this uh, clipping, weight clipping idea. And I was like, this is so simple. I, I can just like, it's one line of change uh, of code, you know, in, in my little torch experiments that I had on Celebate. And the first time I tried it, it worked. It, it didn't work uh, amazingly, but it worked better than other stuff that I had tried, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, Sumit came on board and just made everything 10 times better or, more than that, I guess, uh, he also helped uh, the experiment design. But no, to be honest, the, the theory was finished before the first experiments. Um, 
And uh, in the, these two papers, I was very lucky that I, I, I knew Sumit very well from my time in Facebook. And I knew how the experiments were going to turn out because uh, he had worked a lot on guns to know how they behaved, you know. Uh, it was very yeah. nice in the sense that uh, the experiment load was, I don't know, a couple of days uh, at most. Um, and uh, yeah, no, that was very, it was a very smooth process, actually. Um, the, the the thing that was uh, that took uh, a lot of time, or I guess most of the time near the end, was the experiment design part, like saying, okay, what do we need to do? Like, what are the rights experiments for these papers? What are our claims? Uh, how, and, and how to validate those claims with experiments? And this is how Sumit came up with like train a network uh, without batch norm and like with a different discriminator, like very unbalanced architectures, you know, things that people couldn't train until then. And then uh, showing that this works. Um, and yeah, that was a, an amazing contribution of his and kind of the whole experiment design of the paper. And this is actually what kind of took more time in the end. And the writing of the paper, the writing of the paper took like a full month. So then after this, this kind of chain of three related papers, um, how do you get from there to then focusing on this out of domain generalization problem? Um, basically the way it worked was that I knew I wanted a break. Like, uh, I was a bit done uh, with, uh, writing, uh, experiments, all of this stuff. And I was, I had a very kind of, I, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to learn more math that was, that semester I, I, I got very heavily kind of into like Riemann geometry and things like this and took a bunch of classes in Courant and that was very nice. And the other thing was that, uh, I was like, okay, what's the next problem to think about? Because, uh, the parts that I wanted to work on in GANs, I think we did, uh, and I, and the rest, uh, seemed kind of very application specific in GANs and stuff. So, and I wanted a break from it. I just wanted to do other stuff. And, uh, yeah, I started to think a bit more about, uh, why, what's missing right now in machine learning? Like, why haven't we solved the AI, you know? And uh, in that landscape, there were a few different things. Uh, and one of them was this fact that, you know, I knew about a uh, sort of uh, experiments where, for example, you train on MNIST and then you flip the colors, uh, like uh, the black and white, and then the network stops working and stuff. Uh, so I knew about uh, some of these, like little out of distribution experiments. and. You know, it seemed pretty obvious to me that uh, from working in a, a bit of applied machine learning in internships and stuff that most of the time, uh, you know, you're dealing with out of distribution problems. Um, and yeah, I was like, uh, okay, this seems interesting. What can we do for this? And uh, um, my advisor has always been kind of very keen on causality and things like this. And I had a, a very good friend uh, of mine, David Lopez Paz, that did his entire PhD on this. And... I mean, there's a pretty, there's something that came up uh, a few times, which is that if you know the cause of, of something, like if uh, if I know that um, the recipe for, say, making coffee, you know, I know that uh, if I apply, like, uh, I know that, then I know that if I put twice the amount of water and tw twice the amount of coffee beans, uh, then I will get twice the amount of coffee, even though I've never mm -hmm. maybe done that quantity of coffee before in my life. Um, so there's something pretty obvious, which is that if you have causal knowledge about the world, whatever that may be defined, um, you can generalize to things that you haven't seen before, just because you know the, the understanding of it. And a very simple also view of this is that if you have a dynamical system and you know, like, if you have that 
uh, x prime is f of x and you know what f is, then uh, I can put x to whatever value I want and I will know how the dynamical system evolves, right? Like, uh, um, mm -hmm. so, yeah, uh, and I, I didn't know anything about causality at the time. I just knew that uh, the Leon was very excited on it, which was enough for me to think that perhaps it is important because I, I really trusted and I trust Leon's vision on these things. Uh, and uh, yeah, I started reading a lot of it. Six months passed uh, and I knew the basics of it. Um, and uh, I wanted to do an internship that summer. I didn't really want to stay in New York. I wanted to explore a little bit. And I decided to go to Paris to Facebook AI. And in the end, I, I ended up working with David Lopez passing there most of the time. And we just started kind of uh, thinking more concretely about this problem of out of distribution generalization and uh, what the hell causality meant. Uh, when you have an image because you know most of causality back until then uh, with very few exceptions was about funding causal graphs and uh, this theory of identifiability and stuff which even though perhaps it's important in many problems if i have an image what the hell is a graph you know like <laughs> there is no graph between the pixels that cause each other or things like this uh, or this discussion of uh, whether the, the the image causes the label or the label causes the image or this kind of thing is it's pretty ridiculous honestly uh, yeah I think, uh, so, uh, I mean, I I made the obvious observation that, uh, you know, if any causality is at play, it's at a latent variable level, and how do we discover latent variables that have causality, uh, or that have at least statistical properties that uh, allow us to generate a distribution and that uh, perhaps uh, inspired from causality, and this is sort of how IRM came to be in the sense that, um, Six months after this internship, we tried a lot of different things. Nothing worked, but also nothing makes sense, you know? Like, uh, the things that we were trying were ridiculous. Like, was, for example, doing this, uh, trying to find the graph between, like, uh, the image net features uh, and things like this, which, again, you know, it's not, like, the, the theory for, for finding graphs in causality and all of this stuff uh, just didn't apply. Um, mm -hmm. So I started to think more about uh, what statistical properties are preserved in causal graphs and things like this that could be true even if you even don't observe them uh, directly. And you know, if you have a causal graph, uh, it's very and you don't. Uh, I always thought about uh, causal graphs as kind of the arrows are sort of like your dynamical system dynamics. Like uh, there is the way the world works. You know, the arrows and. Uh, this is something that you cannot play, or perhaps, you know, most of the time you don't. Like, uh, it's the causal relationships in itself. Uh, and uh, for example, is the, in here the arrows would be, for example, the recipe of coffee, and the, more importantly, the way that the coffee relates to the water, and the way, I guess what I mean is like, uh, like just the physical process of, of the coffee making itself, no? And the nodes would be, for example, the amount of water I put, the amount of uh, coffee beans I put, right? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And to me, the nodes were things that I could like intervene on. And uh, yeah, I guess uh, after some time, uh, the, the idea that uh, the thing that was particular of the causal parents, so the causes of a target variable, uh, the, like the, the thing that remained the, the same when you intervened was the conditional distribution be, uh, from the causes to, to the target. And then came the idea of, uh, finding features such that the conditional probability from those features to Y uh, remain the same across different uh, data sets. 
And from then on, it was uh, like that was the the real starting point, I guess. Of uh, or, or when IRM became more of uh, just exploring what could be done in causality, and it was like a more concrete idea. And then uh, there were 30 different uh, problems that appeared from the non that had to do with, okay, how do we optimize this? Uh, what does the optimization landscape look like? Because it was impossible to optimize with whatever different losses we tried. Uh, what are the experiments that made sense? How to formalize this a bit more properly? And then questions of sample complexity that are very natural in the sense of how many data sets do I need for this to work? You know. Yeah, so, so then taking a step back, so the, the out of distribution, generalization you got interested in this by just your own familiarity i guess with different problems or was it from read because you have these different examples in the thesis mm -hmm. and i think some of them are from past work like there's this example with the gaussian that's used a lot yeah. so when you were kind of formalizing this idea in your mind was it a combination of um previous ways that have been formalized or was this kind of what we were talking about where there was like this real difficulty in trying to figure out what we're even talking about? I mean, it's always both, I guess. Sorry for the lame answer, but uh, you know, it's always, uh, yeah, it's always a bit of both, but I think uh, something that I've done throughout is always kind of keep the problem first. The problem to me is and always was uh, making networks generalize better in practice, like in problems industrial at the industrial level that we care about. Uh, the journey is 1% done, I guess. Um, but uh, this is always the problem. And then everything else was trying to set the foundations for that. Uh, and obviously that built on a ton of prior work uh, that, uh, that I was reading along the time. And yeah, just... Uh, like toy versions of that, that problem that, that, that I wanted to solve. Yeah, so this, this out of distribution generalization, I was thinking about this problem of trying to learn algorithms from data. And, and I was wondering if there's some connection here yeah. that um, these deep learning models, for instance, on really simple addition problems, um, there's been recent work showing that if you learn, say, a sequence to sequence model, then it'll succeed on uh, addition problems with a certain number of digits that it's trained on, but then it fails to extrapolate to a larger number of digits. And then more generally, um, there's, yeah, just this issue of learning some algorithm. So here would be the underlying algorithm for addition from data. Do you think that these are somehow related? So that this is a kind of, um, there is some algorithm that's invariant in this situation yeah and that part of the difficulty of current methods has to do with this or do you view these as kind of separate issues i no no, no. Uh, they're they're extremely related to me and and mm. the idea of finding algorithms to me is one of the the long-term goals uh, or the uh, or one of the inspirations that i, I had for for many of these things uh, the addition problem and to me the, the even simpler version was the parity problem you know like uh, uh, we have no sequence to sequence models that generalize to solving parity for arbitrary length uh, sequences yeah at least to the best of my knowledge but uh, and uh, you know it's funny because i was thinking when you send me the questions that like uh, or like a few like related questions one of the things that that I was thinking of uh, on the question of uh, what is the thing that would surprise me if I saw it on archive tomorrow. Uh, 
is uh, yeah finding that uh, you could solve algorithmic like coding competition problems uh, with machine learning. You know that you could build a, a neural network to solve these problems, mm -hmm. and I think that's extremely far from 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 what we can do now for many reasons. But um, yeah, this was this was one of the main inspirations. I think the this question will require more than invariance. Invariance mm -hmm. is, I think, to me, a tool to attack uh, spurious correlations. Uh, which is one of the failure modes that models might have to learn this. But there is a, another way more important uh, question for this problem, which is how do we learn functions that have uh, an algebraic flavor? Because, you know, nothing uh, right now that we have done um, generalizes in an algebraic way. Like, no neural network, uh, as far as I know, generalizes to like arbitrary sequen length sequences. And I want to mean arbitrary, I mean like a million, you know? Um, nothing generalizes to arbitrary sequences or arbitrary values or things like this, like algebra does and like humans do, you know? Mm -hmm. I teach a 13-year-old that, a uh, 13-year-old, even younger, uh, that uh, for parity, they only need to check the last digit of the thing and they do that and, and that's it, you know? They can solve parity for any number. Um, and I always put as an example, you know what really generalizes out of distribution? Dijkstra's algorithm. You put Dijkstra any graph and it will work. Regardless of the number of nodes, regardless of everything, it will just work. And mm -hmm. uh, humans have a lot of this way of thinking. We also have much softer, complex, uh, intuitive behavior that neural networks have shown very good uh, at solving. But uh, there's a, a whole other world in here that is missing, which is kind of learning algebraic uh, functions. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this is a super interesting area of research. but. Uh, and uh, for, to put some examples, I think uh, neural module networks, dream coder, all the work that Kevin Ellis has done uh, and that Josh Tenenbaum has been thinking of uh, is super interesting in this direction. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think in order to solve this, we'll, we'll need invariance, but we'll need other things as well. I don't think uh, just invariant statistical properties are going to give you all the way there if you're, all you're considering are these uh, neural network continuous functions that do not generalize in an algebraic manner, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's really interesting. And yeah, then on this on this topic then, like you mentioned the neural module networks. Yeah. So it seems like in your thesis, you're taking this approach that's based on the objective, right? So it's like developing what is the right objective right. that will yield something which has the, um, these properties we want. Right. Do you think that we also need to think about, or would it be like a separate path where we think about the actual parameterization of the model that maybe with a standard objective, but one of these models with a lot of inductive biases, that could be a path towards this out of distribution generalization or yeah. Just how do you think about these two different um, streams of, of attacking the problem? Yeah. So that's a fantastic question. And uh, in my opinion, we need both. And uh, yeah. Because I think that uh, empirical risk minimization is just not going to solve uh, by itself with any architecture you throw at it, these uh, spurious correlation problems. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm very alone in this opinion, by the way. I mean, in the sense that if you look at the bitter lesson of Rich Sutton and all of this stuff, it's always like parametrization, inductive biases, and ERM is data is the thing that matters. I, I do think that there's a lot of data inefficiency right now, as can be viewed in all of the exploration problems essentially that need more more structure in the loss, not just in the model. Um, but I think both are going to be needed. You know, I think uh, 
even if you have the perfect loss, uh, unless you have a model that thinks algebraically, like, like what dream coder tries to do or neural module networks, unless you have that, you're not gonna learn algorithms or learn like real causality, you know, that has to do with uh, discrete structures as well. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely think you need both. Uh, it's, uh, it's a question of the loss that, um, is just kind of guided towards finding invariant causal structures and uh, a family of functions that can represent these kind of structures because a lot of the causality at play is not continuous and is discrete and we cannot just do that right now, in my opinion. Yeah. So then if you had to summarize, I mean, we might've touched on it already, but if you had to just summarize compactly, like what is the key idea behind this invariant risk minimization? And if you could think back to, was there like a moment when you, when everything kind of clicked together or was it kind of just a gradual process to, to getting to this key idea? Yeah, I think uh, the key idea uh, about IRM is that uh, in causality problems, being the causal parents of a target variable is equivalent to the conditional distribution from these variables to the target being stable across different uh, environments that come from interventions. So it's a, at the very basic level, it's an equivalence between uh, causality and uh, certain statistical properties that are testable, uh, being stable across different environments. And then IRM is just an algorithm to find the features that have those properties. So that's the key idea. And uh, this uh, intuition that causality and certain statistical properties related to the conditional distribution are invariant. So the conditional distribution being the same across data sets. This uh, clicked uh, to me about six or eight months after we started this project and about a year and a half after I started learning causality mm -hmm. uh, around, uh, I think it was January 2017, because I, I remember I was in Argentina when this uh, thing really clicked. Uh, a big inspiration on this was also this uh, paper on learning, I think it was called the Visual Causal Feature Learning or something like this from Pietro Perona and um, uh, Chalupka, um, that also does the count the beach problem and has a few of these observations. But yeah, it was just uh, by looking at, you know, I have a causal graph where I don't know the variables and uh, I have infinite data coming from different interventions and stuff. What can I do to, like, what properties uh, do the causal parents have that I can optimize for? And uh, this conditional distribution thing turned out to be the answer. And then in the thesis, so then on the theory side, is there like one property that you could think of that if someone said like, what, what is the best theoretical property that this has? Does one come to mind? Yeah, good question. So the best theoretical property that one has is that if you have a scrambled linear causal graph, uh, so if you have a causal graph where the variables are hidden, but you observe uh, them like scrambled, and by scrambled, I mean like a, a linear transformation from them. Um, then IRM recovers them with, uh, um, but with needing, uh, if you have D variables, you need D different data sets. So D different interventions, which is kind of standard, but honestly proving this was a big result uh, by then in the sense that uh, already identifiability in causal models was something really hard and uh, no one was able to, by then uh, solve problems where the causal variables were not directly observed, you know, where you didn't have the variables that you wanted to learn your causal graph and being able to do both uh, with like these sample complexity guarantees and everything was 
a big deal, at least to me. And uh, yeah, yeah. it was the theory side of it um, was actually like pretty hard. There was, you know, I think uh, kind of as I was telling you, uh, mo- all of the theorems that I proved and all of the theorems that I had in WGAN were obvious, you know, were something that like none of them were deep results in any way. They're, they're just very standard things. Uh, just, I guess the observation was really important. But uh, the theorems in itself are, are pretty trivial. Um, however, in, in this paper, there was one question, which is um, how do we prove that IRM with the environments finds the right answer? And this was, uh, this was not easy at all. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. finding the number of environments that you needed and, and coming up with the proof, that, that is the only one mathematical result that I'm kind of proud of and that I feel that I made like a solid like mathematical contribution, I would say, because yeah, it was pretty involved and it required some tools from differential topology uh, and things like this. Um, and I think uh, it's quite a cool idea. Uh, it's a very, it's not a long proof, it's just one page, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy for that result. And it, it took a lot of work to be honest. Yeah. What, so you mentioned it used these tools from uh, differential topology, I think you said. What kind yeah. of, um, when you say that that's the one that you're happy with or proud of, what factors make something into a result that you're proud of versus the other ones? Um, I guess that, you know, it wasn't an obvious thing in the sense that mm. this was the only result that technically it was really challenging as well. Like, uh, even though this thing was uh, very obvious intuitively, uh, actually proving it was 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 pretty hard and uh, yeah it required the kind of uh, it required um, a lot of work a lot of really hard work uh, and thinking maybe for some people it, it was obvious again eh? but for me it was it was pretty hard and yeah it was kind of the coming down of uh, being able to comfortably handle the, these things. Uh, the main uh, theorem that I use was this tool in differential topology that's called the Thom uh, transversality theorem that basically says that if you have uh, manifolds uh, that are, yeah, random manifolds, they intersect, uh, they, they don't intersect kind of like parallelly, like they just intersect transversally, like kind of like X's rather than like two parallel lines or things like this. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was just a, it was a situation in which we knew that something could be proven, but finding out the the actual theorem with the number of environments needed and uh, coming up with a proof uh, were really hard, uh, purely theoretical uh, tasks. While the other times, you know, you make the observation and then the theorem is obvious and the proof is obvious in in W guns and stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. So then, yeah, one thing that I was talking about with Simon Dew when he was on, so he works on a lot of theory and just the kind of um, the, sim- the, the the different assumptions you have to make, the simple, the simpler settings that you have to consider uh, in order, just because theory is so difficult. And then yeah. once we've proven things from these simpler settings and we kind of move to, to more complexity, so yeah. In the, from that perspective, how do you kind of view the work that you've done so far in this area? Do you think that there's um, some gap between what you've shown theoretically and what happens in practice? Or is it kind of 
Yeah, like how do you think about that? Yeah, so it's a good question. I'm going to be very honest. I think IRM uh, is useful only in very few instances of like the spurious correlation problems that we were wanted to solve. I know that there have been like some industrial applications and stuff. NISA is using it for, for stuff related to discovery of cancer uh, in astronauts and stuff. Uh, so it's actually been applied in, in practice and stuff, uh, but most of the times that people try to use it, it doesn't really work. And uh, one of the main reasons for this is that uh, IRM doesn't distinguish between zero training error predictors in the sense that, uh, um, yeah, if you have uh, an over-parameterized classifier or something like this that has zero training error across the, all your examples, which is usually the case, um, then uh, IRM will not be able to do better than ERM, at least in the basic form, let's say. Um, but uh, so there's a whole family of problems that we wanted to solve that are nowhere nearly addressed. And this comes from the fact that uh, when we were doing IRM, we never thought about the sample complexity, like the amount of data points you have in each data set. We just thought of the, the main thing that we wanted to do was uh, to solve uh, certain out of distribution problems when you had very limited amount of data sets. But we never thought of the number of data points that you had in each data set, thinking like, oh, ImageNet, it has so many data points. And you know, if I have, the thing that I really care about is having, being able to do well with few data sets. And it turns out that, yeah, you know, ImageNet has a lot of data points, but uh, it has a, a million and something data points, but in the end we have 10 million and something parameters. So, you know, uh, we do, uh, even if we have a lot of data points, we still have over parameterized models and this doesn't play well with IRM. Um, so this is one of the things that I'm working on now is how how to deal with spurious correlations in over-parameterized settings like the ones we have in practice. Wow, that's, that's really interesting. That, that's actually what we were talking about with Simon is um, is this over-parameterized setting. And, and that's some of the things that he explored in terms of um, SGD. Yeah. So yeah, that's interesting that I guess if you if you don't consider this difference between over-parameterized versus not, then it sounds like you might not think to consider certain aspects of the problem. Is that kind of the general picture? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have an over-parameterized problem, IRM will do the job pretty well. Uh, and you see mm -hmm. this in most applications that uh, IRM works on are kind of, of that, that flavor. And in causality, this is the situation, you know, in the traditional causality thing, uh, you have a lot of data points from each environment at least in the, the mindset that people were thinking of. But this is not what happens in practice. In practice, uh, you always have over-parameterized models, or in practice, I mean, like Im image classification, like large-scale deep neural network problems that we deal with. Uh, yeah, and this is something that, that we cannot address right now. But it and it's really hard in the sense that it it mixes what you discussed uh, of uh, like the implicit bias of SGD uh, and like the interplay between optimization and generalization comes into play, which is extremely challenging. Um, yeah. Now, now that I'm working with Francis Bach and, and a couple of other people, this is one of the things that I'm spending most of my time learning about. But it's uh, it's pretty hard, then. Yeah? yeah, that's a good transition then to talk about um, after the PhD. So, could you just talk through like your decision process to want to do a postdoc, and then? Um, so is this kind of general area what you think you'll be focusing on for the at least near future? Good question. Um, the decision process for doing a postdoc was kind of the following. I wanted to explore academia. I wanted to explore the idea of being a professor. 
I had very good friends in Paris. I like the life in here. So I wanted to move in Par to, to Paris and doing a postdoc with Francis Bach seemed like a great idea. And just in general in the lab. Uh, yeah, and uh, regarding to the future, um, I do see myself working on this in the near future, but I also want to work more on exploration, which is something that I did doing during an internship in DeepMind uh, that has to do with, yeah, just exploration reinforcement learning. But the nice thing is that exploration involves many problems that are quite interesting, like uh, uncertainty estimation, um, anomaly detection, just in general, this idea of uh, uncertainty. Um, and it's also a very out of distribution problem in many ways. Uh, I talk a bit uh, in my thesis about this, but uh, yeah. So these are kind of the two things that I will be focusing for the near future. One is this, uh, what does causality and invariance mean uh, and out of distribution generalization in over-parameterized problems? And uh, the other one is uh, exploration. Yeah, I see. Do you have a sense that, um, just thinking like really broadly, do you, ever think, do you have a sense that there's something fundamentally wrong with our current paradigm that we're in. So using these over-parameterized networks with SGD and that in 10 years, we might be using something completely different or is it maybe a question of uh, kind of what we're working on now, like finding the right objectives, finding the right architectures for those models? I mean, to be honest, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I think... <laughs> It's hard to say. Um, yeah, I, I really don't know. Um, there is a, there seems to be something very easy about the things that we're doing now, but yeah, there, I, I don't know, to be honest. Hopefully, I, I hope not, to be honest. I think uh, training these huge models to do very simple things is a waste of, waste of energy, time, and compute. Uh, I hope we can find simpler things um, and, and cheaper things um, and more efficient things. And the, the, other, the other thing that I am pretty convinced that is fundamentally wrong is the way we approach the learning setup most of the time. Um, like just in general, trying to learn everything from static data sets or a few data sets, you know, I think uh, the idea of uh, grounded problems, like grounded language, uh, more things that have to do with agents or even just like curriculums, you know, things like this, I, I think uh, should be more involved into our everyday training process. Like to one example of a fantastic, fantastic paper that to me does a few things wrong in this way is Dreamcoder, which is this paper by Kevin Ellis uh, on kind of neural symbolic algorithms to learn uh, algorithms from data. And the way they learn sort and a couple of things which really do generalize out of distribution in the way we we're talking about before, like they learn pieces of code, you know, um, that are probably correct. But they learn them from input-output pairs, like IAV, you know? It's ridiculous. Like, this is not how humans learn to sort. We don't learn to sort by <laughs> grabbing 10 million pairs of uh, non-sorted sorted lists. Uh, we learn things and algorithms to solve tasks. Um, and this is, I think, the way that uh, things should uh, work more and more. Now, it's very easy for, this to, for me to say this, but uh, I have to acknowledge that Whenever you want to work on a rail on anything that has to do with a grounded agent, uh, there's a lot more work involved. How to code the environment, there's a lot more engineering, and, and this is not very easy. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, whenever we get towards the end of the episode, the, there's a lot of speculation going on, so it's fine that 
<laughs> if you don't know exactly what the future will look like in 10 years. But do you think that this interest in the exploration problem in, in RL, um, is it because it's related to the out-of-distribution generalization, or is this like a separate no. interest? Or yeah, It's a separate interest. Uh, it's just uh, it's something that I think is very fundamental and, and very unsolved. Uh, and uh, again, it's a, it's a problem where I kind of like the math and I like the, the it, it just seems fascinating to me. And it's something that humans do so well, you know, like uh, I'm exploring a, a maze. I don't just move around randomly, you know, I try one uh, one path, doesn't work. I try another one, doesn't work. I try another one, I found the exit. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think uh, humans are so efficient in the way they try stuff. Like, uh, you know, I, this, I, this simple concept of uh, trying one thing and then uh, when it doesn't work, trying something different um, and how to formalize this simple idea and how to come up with algorithms that are efficient at doing this. It's a whole world. And yeah, it, makes, it it's fundamentally related to uncertainty in the sense that uh, the reason why I try something different is because it reduces my my uncertainty on how to solve the task, you know, uh, or one way to view this at least. Um, and uh, this is from a mathematical point, uh, very, very interesting to me. Like uh, what is uncertainty um, and, and how to quantify this and how to make algorithms that reduce uncertainty. Uh, yeah, that's kind of it, I guess. It's just an interesting problem. And, I, and it's something that I miss from doing ImageNet a thousand times is, uh, watching agents play and doing things and things like this, you know, yeah. it's just, uh, it's just more fun to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, like we mentioned, um, in your thesis, you, you looked into this uh, from the objective function perspective, but kind of a fun question. If you could think of your PhD process as being some kind of optimization process and that you had an <laughs> objective function guiding your own behavior, what would you say that it was? Was it kind of scientific exploration? And then do you think that that's changed uh, over time? Yeah, it's a great question. It changed for sure. In the beginning, I was really scared about, uh, you know, proving myself as a researcher in machine learning and stuff and what's going to happen after and getting internships and all of this stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, I felt uh, a lot more pressure to publish uh, from myself and from the world, uh, but mostly from myself, I guess. Um, and uh, this is why I was like, oh, let's, let's write a paper, solve the gun thing now, like uh, kind of a very speedy process. And after that was done, I felt very relieved and I felt like I could take my time, just learn a lot more math uh, and just explore things kind of in a more calm way. Um, um, and then a year after, you know, once uh, I'm in the middle of a project and nothing is working, then I started panicking again. And then a year after the IRM paper was finished. <laughs> Um, so obviously it's not so smooth in the sense that even if you're relieved uh, later on, it catches up to you, but no, for sure it changed. Um, I don't know. In the beginning, it was more of a, still the problem of guns and Wasserstein and all this was super interesting to me. Like, and I would have done it for free, you know, like even if uh, there was no scientific reward or, or anything like this, but mm -hmm. for sure I was optimizing a lot more as well, like, uh, getting internships, uh, being able to get a job after like, uh, and just in general, this ego trip of how the academic world sees you, you know. Um, and I think that's changed quite a bit uh, towards the end of my PhD. Um, and uh, yeah, nowadays I'm pretty pretty retracted from the machine learning community and, 
I, I, think, uh, I think this ego machine can destroy you uh, if you let it run loose uh, and it can make your entire life about this. And I see many junior professors working ridiculous hours a day, not working even on things that they're super interested in or working in depth, you know, and I don't want my life to be that. Um, so at least I'm, now I'm taking a step back and, and seeing what happens. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a sense of what the solution might be? Solution? Oh, I have no idea. I'm just playing by ear. Uh, <laughs> no, and I think it is very personal, you know. It has to do yeah. with uh, what your own, what brings you happiness. Uh, has to do with the expectations and the, like what pressures we put on ourselves and all of these things. And I don't know. No, I, I don't <laughs> I think uh, it's a very individualized question. Like uh, everyone will have to find their own answers, you know, and, and explore a little bit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, this has been great. And I think I could derive a lot of advice just from what we've already talked about in terms of, uh, I really liked how you said that um, mathematics for you was, it's almost like doing exercise for the brain. Yeah, for sure. That it doesn't really have to be related to, to what you're working on. And that's just good to do. Um, but if you could think back and just come up with like one piece of advice for a new researcher, and it could just be a useful heuristic, it could be all encompassing if you want one piece of advice for a new researcher getting started. Um, only work on problems that are interesting to you. So think really uh, more about the problems and uh, work more towards understanding the problems than because you find certain tools or solutions cool. Like really think of the problem first, I would say. Well, yeah, thanks so much. This has been really great. I, I really enjoyed going through your thesis, the way it's written. I learned it. Oh, I'm glad. And it got me thinking about these different problems, like, uh, you know, important problems <laughs> like addition and how do you extract yeah, yeah. And um, Sorry, such a side, uh, this is why it drives me crazy. You know, people say that GPT is going to solve AI in three years and then uh, we're going to solve uh, addition. <laughs> I think we're a bit far off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so thank, thanks so much for doing this. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading your future papers. And thanks for coming on the thesis review. No, oh, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah.